Pardon the interruption. Let's turn to the Word of God at three points in the Gospels, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and Matthew 17, which will be our text for this evening. But these passages in Mark and Luke are parallel to the Gospel account of the Transfiguration in Matthew 17. In Mark chapter 9, first of all, we'll read the first 10 verses. Note the similarities and the differences of the one word of God. God uses men, real men, from their perspectives to, to point us to the glorious mountain of truth. So one's on this side of the mountain, another on this, and another on that, and they're all looking up at the same thing, but seeing uh, and recording things somewhat differently as the Spirit gives them to record and to remember the things that they'd seen and heard of the event of the transfiguration. Here in Matthew, Mark 9, for example, we read this. And he, Jesus, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Mark chapter 9, God's word. Luke chapter 9 and verses 28 through 36. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. And then we go to our text, Matthew chapter 17, and verses 1 through 9. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. 
And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Thus far we read these three accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus, of which many of us confess we know very little. This event in Jesus' life is unique and it is profound, speaking of the great things of the glory of Jesus and of his demise, his decease at Jerusalem, and combining them together with a conversation about Moses, or with Moses and Elijah, and a visitation to Peter and James and John by this Lord in his glory that they were confounded by. But we'll attempt. Certainly what has to be understood about this vision here, or not this vision, but this event, this transfiguration, as we call it, this glorification of Jesus, is the setting. The setting is that in the last chapter, Jesus has turned a chapter, as it were, of his, of his life and revealed to the disciples things uh, that they need to know if they are to know who he is and if they are to follow him. And so he's fished for an answer, as it were, about his identity. He's working in them to know truly who he is by asking first who to everybody say, else says that I am, and then who do you say I am? And eliciting by this question the great confession of Peter on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And after expounding on that and commending Jesus, or Peter for this and and saying that this was like a rock, this confession that would be the, uh, on which the church was built, Jesus then speaks of his necessity of suffering. And then, as we heard last Sunday night, of the necessity also, if we would follow him, to follow him without anything between us and him, and take up our crosses and deny ourselves and show the world that Jesus is worth following. Now, beloved, at this point, perhaps it's simply this that is the occasion for the transfiguration to encourage the disciples. Here they are confronted with the truth directly from Jesus of his identity of Messiah, as Messiah, and of the necessity of his being killed and then rising only after that death. And they're confused, as Peter shows here, and they need encouragement. They need this visit of glory. And so there's this high mountain they go to, and I would say as well, Jesus needs encouragement in his human nature. He's going up to pray. 
He's about to face the, the lions of Jerusalem, the, the terrible agents of, of Satan, the false leaders of a, of a blind people, the blind leading the blind, and he needs encouragement. And so he goes up to pray on this high mountain, the where, whereabouts of which we do not know, though there's much speculation. But in this moment and in this place of peace, he finds peace with God, and there's this wonderful, encouraging, transfiguring moment and voice from heaven for the Son's sake and also for the disciples. Beloved, we ourselves need to be encouraged, and if we don't think we do, we, we're not really following close to Jesus. Because the more that we follow Jesus and the more we bear a cross, the more difficult it can become. And even though we're following him hard by, we want nothing in between us and Jesus. There's all kinds of temptations. And they have to do just with these two things, the truth of which is revealed in this transfiguration. They, our discouragements, have to deal with sufferings and they have to do with glory. We can be distracted by the glory and think too little of the glory of the gospel itself, or we can think too much of the sufferings of this time and then renounce the faith altogether, deny the faith. And, beloved, this is the struggle we have as Christians. May we ourselves be encouraged then by the transfiguration which we see that there's the glory as of none other that's given here, revealed here, the glory of God in Jesus. And then, remarkably, that there's glory here that is anticipated of which many will share, even the saints and church of God, the bride of Christ, the glorious bride of Christ. Well, Jesus here goes up to this mountain. Follow along, children, with the rest of us, of course. As we hear, uh, we, we see here in this Mysterious holy place, they're by themselves, and the three favored disciples, apparently, Peter, James, and John, the intimate ones, they're with Jesus. And Jesus is transfigured, and we get the word metamorphosis from that, used here in in this account and also in two other places to which we'll refer. But there's a great change of his condition, his state, Even though he's a man, yet there's a foretaste of his glory. And so glory is the shining forth of God, you see. And John speaks of that in his gospel, that we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John was no doubt referring, at least in part, to this moment when he beheld the glory on the glory mount of Jesus. So there's this change in appearance and his face shining like the sun, his clothes become as white as the light, something of which Daniel spoke of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7 when he said, I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. This is a reference to the Messiah. And of this glory of the Messiah, we read also in Revelation chapter 1, 
that this one like the Son of Man is clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Further, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, note this, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now picture this. Can you? Squint at least. Be careful. It's a picture here, as only the Bible can present it, of the great Son of God like the sun, S-U-N, brightly shining and burning, and Jesus himself, as it were, in this display of the glory that is his, overwhelming the disciples, and it ought also to cause us to tremble. And then there is Moses and Elijah. They appear to him. Remember, Moses, he died and he couldn't enter into the promised land. And then there is this Elijah who never died. And some say this represents, does Moses, all the saints who've died in glory, and Elijah, all the saints who've yet to die, be that as it may, they are certainly representative of all that the Bible ever said, Moses representing the law and being the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophets, though Moses himself was a great prophet who spoke the truth of God. Well, they're there. Children, what a a scene here. Moses and Elijah. And we don't read that they were introduced to Peter, James, and John. Somehow they just knew it was Moses and Elijah. And there's this revelation of the identity of these glorified saints, Moses and Elijah, with Jesus, and they're also participating somehow in the glory that that Jesus has and is showing like the sun. So they're talking to him, and we read in one of the other passages that they're talking to Jesus about his decease, that is, by his death, and another way to translate that is his departure, his going out, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They're they're talking to Jesus about that and he to them. What they're saying we can only imagine, we can only speculate, though we can figure that they being glorified and without sin have truth to say and truth to learn and, and wonder to show at this wonderful truth of Jesus' death and going out and striking... What they're speaking of is literally the exodus. When I think Luke says they spoke to him of his departure, it's the Greek language, the Greek word for exodus, exodus. They're speaking of the exodus, meaning Jesus leaving this earth, even as Israel did, and being freed from this realm of sin, this condition of slavery and so on, this humiliation and brought into the fellowship of God outside that Egypt prison land of bondage. So they're talking to him. And then we have this reaction of Peter. He says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here, if you wish. 
Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he's speaking, we'll, we'll deal with Peter's reaction in the second point, but while he's speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadows them, as if that sunlight wasn't enough. That shining of the sun, far brighter than we had to sh- close curtains for, if that weren't enough, there's a voice. And this is the voice, obviously, of the Father. Because this bright cloud overshadowing even the glory suddenly speaks uh, as a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And so even as at the commencement of Jesus' ministry, the occasion of his baptism, the Father pronounces uh, whom he th- what he thinks of his Son and calls for obedience to him. And then at that time, the disciples hear it. They fall on their faces. They're greatly afraid. Jesus touches them and says, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There's this transfiguration. Well, beloved, <clears throat> what do we say about this? What is going on here? There's light here, to be sure, great light indeed. And the light that Jesus would shed upon the path of the disciples as they now followed him all the way to Jerusalem and his demise and the the scattering of the flock and so on. They need to know this. They need to know something of this Jesus whose glory has been veiled hitherto. So the first thing is that they need to know here he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. That is the eternal and natural Son of God. This glory is divinity. This glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and the one who occupies human nature and human flesh is the one in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And here it bursts out as rays from the sun, which can no longer be hid even behind the veil of his necessary humiliation. This is Jesus whom he is as God, the Son. Amazing. And striking, though, there's still something of the glory of God. Even in this glorification of Jesus, this pre-glorification glorification, he will be fully and perfectly glorified in the ascension, at the sitting of the right hand of God, He will even pray for that glory to be restored to him in the high priestly prayer in John 17. So he prays, God, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. But here's this anticipation of that. And it's only an anticipation and a prefiguring of it, an approximation of it, could we say, because it's something that seems to be overshadowed by the voice of the Father. So Jesus shows his divinity here, but still in this capacity that disciples can receive it. You see, children, if we were to see the Son in all its glory, as Jesus is the Son of God in all his glory, if we were to see that and there wouldn't be any atmosphere, any ozone or whatever protecting us from the sun rays, we'd burn up 
Our eyes would burn up. There could be no life. If the sun was just a couple of million miles uh, closer, we'd, we'd shrivel up. If it was a couple of million miles further away, we'd freeze to death. God is so wonderful in his wise providence to set the sun in the heavens at between 93 and 96 million miles away. But here, the sun is given, the glory of the sun is given, and he's, he's far away and yet he's close. We are not burned up. But when they hear the voice of the Father, then they start to fear for their lives, don't they? And they tremble, and Jesus has to calm them, calm their souls. But certainly of the divinity of Jesus, there's a revelation here. Of his glory also as Messiah, who participates in the glory of God, in the saving of a people. This is something that's revealed here. Again, Peter knew this. The others knew this by their confession. Heaven revealed it unto them. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They said that. But here's confirmation from heaven itself as heaven itself comes down. The Father and the Son, no doubt where the Father and the Son are, there's the Spirit working in the hearts of these privileged and yet trembling disciples. The truth of this, the awesomeness of this, so Jesus is God the Son, Jesus as the Messiah, who must be God in the flesh, is revealed here. All of his dignity, all of the need that he be reverenced is revealed here. And that he be reverenced because he represents the Father. If they were to get too close to Jesus and think that he is a buddy merely, then it would be and because of a misunderstanding about Jesus. They must worship him. His authority is brought out by the fact that um, the Father says to the disciples just this one word. After he says, this is my beloved son, the Father is very pleased with his son in whom I'm well pleased. This, hear him. Hear him. Obey him. Follow him. He just indicated in his words, you got to follow me. Even though it be a cross, even though it's not about yourself, you got to deny yourself. The Father corroborates the word of the Son. Follow him. Hear him. Hear him. Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, believe it. Whatever he says, take it very seriously. He's my word, after all. My word. Hear him, you hear me. An amazing revelation here of the glory of God in Jesus as God, as Messiah, as the one who's reverent, as the one who has authority from heaven. And it will be given this in an advanced glorified state when he goes from the disciples and is exalted to the right hand of God. All authority and power will be given unto him. So that's the revelation of the glory of Jesus that's presented here, the glory of God, the Messiah, and the glory that awaits him. 
The striking thing about this, though, is the context where Jesus has just said, the Son of Man must die. And later on, he'll say, the Son of Man must die the death of crucifixion. That waits for them to hear that and receive that. But the Son of Man must die. And what Jesus is doing here is putting glory only in the context of suffering. There's no glory if there's some other way he chooses. If he had yielded to the devil early on in his ministry after he's baptized and he's led away by the Spirit to be tested in the wilderness, if he had yielded to the devil who said, oh, just bow down and worship me or jump off this cliff and the angels will take care of you or make these stones into bread and no problem, if Jesus had chosen that glory path without a blood path, there would be no glorification of the Son. But the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father, and the Son has come to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is this, that Jesus be glorified and magnified and the church be saved only in the crucifixion of the Messiah, who's in your place, beloved, and mine, because he deals with sin. You see, on the back of Jesus at this time in this mysterious mount is our sin. He would take that sin and the sin of all of his church and mount the Mount Golgotha and there give himself to the Father's wrath for you. There the great firestorm of God's wrath burns out on the sun and burns up the sun. So he's just a potsherd, a little piece of pottery in the kiln of infinite heat and wrath and anger at sin, and he's burned up for our sakes, for your sake, for my sake. Glory only that way. You see, here's the two. Glory and suffering. That glory of Jesus and that suffering. Go together, they do. These, in fact, together are the stumbling block of the gospel. This is why people are not in church right now who might normally be watching the Super Bowl, whenever it is. This is why this explains why the church is so distracted in this age, because lots of things that, that, that tinkle and lots of things that shine and lots of things that glitter are tempting us to look away from the glory of God in Jesus that is through the mangled body of Jesus. When all alone he goes to the cross, and there's no front line, there's no one else on his side, not even God, who forsakes him. The God who right now says, I am well pleased with my son, pours all the billows of his wrath upon his son, even though, of course, he's even most well pleased when his son would endure that. This isn't divine and cosmic child abuse of the father and the son. But God is doing something here, very holy. He's being God. And being God in the salvation of the sinner's that he's ordained to life 
involves and necessarily must involve God showing something about himself that he takes sin seriously. And so the son's glory is in the way of the son's death, substitutionary atonement, paying for our sins in fulfillment of all the types and the shadows and all the blood that was ever shed in the Old Testament Israel camp that could never, never forgive sins, but his does. You see that? People choose another glory and they mock at this kind of a savior. This is no quarterback. This guy has no speed. This guy's just like us. No bigger than us. Not stronger than us. Not in his humanity. And besides, he looks so deformed. What's that on his shoulder? That sin, that ugliness, there must be something that God finds wrong with him. And look at those people who follow him. What a bunch of losers, they say. And you know that, don't you? They say Christianity's a drug. They say Christianity is just for the weak. They say Christianity is just for those who, who think that um, the only thing to do in this life to get by and to cope is to go to some mountain and to pray to some Savior and to have some hope and no grounding in reality, they'll say. No, can't be. That's too, too impossible. Wonder if that's why Peter, this is my second point, final point, why Peter himself acted as he did. Was he stumbling here? There's Moses and Elijah appearing to Jesus. And Peter answers and says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here if, if you wish. And I wonder if Peter is being a little hesitant here because last time he told Jesus something, he'd had a devil. And he said, not be it, Lord, that you would suffer that's the, far be it from you. That's not becoming of, of you, Jesus. And Jesus had said, get behind me, Satan. And so Peter's a little hesitant here, maybe. He says, Lord, if, if you wish, I'll make some tabernacles here, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. What's going on here? Is Peter not getting this glory, not getting it, not getting this first wave of glory and the shining of the sun in in the brightness of the sun itself? Is that what's going on here? Peter may be being simply Peter, and rather spontaneous and reckless and impetuous, we would say. But maybe a, a better and a more polished version of Peter, a humbled version, because, Lord, he says, if it's good, it is good for us to be here. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. And if you wish, I'm not trying to push you here, but we'll make some tabernacles. What's going on here? Is it just that personality of Peter? Or is it this? Peter is thinking, this, I know my Bible, 
This is now the kingdom come. Let me explain this. Jesus has just said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who should not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days after that, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up, and there's his glory. So maybe Peter's putting together the prophecy of Jesus, the kingdom's coming quickly, and this glorification of Jesus. So he's saying, this must be it. Further, Peter seems to be being biblical here because when he's referring to tabernacles, it seems without a doubt he's referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles, according to Zechariah uh, chapter 14, was a sign of the care of God in the wilderness, and they'd build booths or tabernacles and huts. The end of that would be a feast, and uh, it would be a sign then that they had ended their pilgrimage. That's why in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles was held at the end of the year, because that was a sign of the coming of the kingdom. And all nations, then, Zechariah 14 tells us, and you can read that, verse 16 and following, all nations were to participate in that. This was the inauguration of Messiah's kingdom, and the Feast of Tabernacle pointed to that. So is Peter, being that theologically erudite and scholarly and cognizant of the fact that maybe prophecies being fulfilled here. And there's one for Moses and one for Elijah because they all are of the word of God. Couldn't it be? Well, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter, but he doesn't go along with Peter either, does he? In fact, it could be, as I suggested in the beginning, that Maybe Peter is stumbling at this juxtaposition of glory and suffering and suffering and glory and not getting it, not getting it. And we read twice, Mark and Luke, Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe because he's so confused as so many people are today even about that suffering glory togetherness and this kind of glory and this kind of suffering. After all, he builds three tabernacles, and Jesus is the tabernacle. He seems to indicate that with Moses and Elijah, Jesus has a place. Or with Jesus, Moses and Elijah have a place. They're all this triumvirate of the leaders of Israel. When if you hear God, after this, the Father come down and overshadow even the glory of the sun here, you hear a different story. And the story is not about Elijah, not about Moses, but about Jesus. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Moses spoke of him. Elijah spoke of him. They spoke of the decease of Jesus and the departure of Jesus and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, even as they had when they were alive and when they spoke the prophets and the mouth of the prophets was the spirit of Jesus speaking of the suffering and the glory that should follow. But it was all about Jesus and not about themselves. 
Certainly, this is what we have to focus on so that our church isn't about Moses, law, or the prophet Elijah, as if Jesus is not the first and final word of God. That should be the focus of every church. In fact, Peter here is ignorant. He doesn't know what he's talking about. The other disciples are too. And we, we don't blame Peter so much as we see this as progress in their education. The Holy Spirit will be poured out and needs to be poured out. The spirit of, of the whole of the Bible and the spirit from heaven and the spirit of the risen and glorified Jesus to explain these things and to put it in the heart. That's the key. There's an advancement of knowledge here. And it all happens to do with the the focus on the Lord and his glory, his triumph over sin in the way of his crucifixion. That's the setting, and that's the setting really of the whole of the Bible, the full revelation of God. Striking. Peter is led to refer to this event in 2 Peter 1, 16 and following. It refers to the Holy Mount that he was an eyewitness of and the transfiguration when God glorified his son in this pre-glory glory. And he speaks there of that Wonderful testimony that this was, the the law, the prophets, and God himself confirming Jesus on his mission. And then he speaks at that context of the Bible, which is a more sure word of prophecy, and really blazes away in the light of God and reminds us that this Bible now is like a light of that glory more sure than the testimony of three men who are dead, though they live in heaven. The Word of God. And that reminds us that this Word of God teaches that the salvation of Jesus is so great and His victory is so great that we somehow get to participate in that glory. You know that? I've just said that it's all Jesus' glory. And God the Father wants us to focus on Jesus, to be sure. But we are given to participate somehow in the glory of that glory because we're His. And when He buys us on Calvary, He buys us to be purchased unto glory, unto this fellowship of God which is so wonderful, so elevating, so that all of the the abyss of here below and all of the the rough places and in all of the valleys, even the valley of the shadow of death, they have a different feel to them not only, but a different reality to them because we go through them as God's people. And we need not fear as the disciples were shaking in their boots In fact, Jesus then at this time revealed his glory of mercy and of his being pastor Jesus. When the disciples who heard it, they fell on their faces, they were greatly afraid. Jesus came and touched them. 
He touched Peter and James and John. Maybe hugged them? Maybe, but I'm not sure this may be the instance where Jesus touches his disciples. I, I know there were, John was reclined upon Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper, but this emphasis on his touching them The Father has spoken to them, but Jesus wants to come to them with his touch. He reached out and touched them and said to them, don't be afraid. This visit of God, unlike the visit of God to Moses, where all the people were shaken, and the visit of God and Elijah and so on, this is the, the, the visit of God par excellence of the God who's great and greatly to be praised for his mercy. Somehow, beloved, we are given, when we are given faith in life, this this acknowledgement that this God of greatness is the God of mercy. And this God who visited them on the mount has come in my time and visited this earth and said, I love you and I take you to the mount of my own holiness and I give you to rise up from the sin and from the quagmire and from the corruption. I set you free to be my people and to understand somehow the wonderful worth of being a Christian, of being a child of God. Hear that, children, young people? Don't ever forget that. You'll be tempted as your parents have been, we're all tempted, with other glories, Sufferings will often tempt you to leave off the path of bearing your cross and suffering that way for Jesus' sake. Listen to the word. That's the message. And the word that says, well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this of our state, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, in comparison with the Jews, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The word transformed there, same word, Jesus was transformed or transfigured. Metamorpho, metamorphosis. Moth to butterfly, caterpillar to butterfly, whatever that is. Some insignificant, ugly state to a glorious thing. And we fly away in the wings of faith. Isn't that beautiful? We are being transformed. We are being transfigured because Jesus was and then there was a suffering. And now there's this glory, glory of heaven. We're being transformed to be made participants of all that he is, of his body, of his atonement, of his spirit, of his word. No, we are not made into God. But we are made into the image of God. And that means, too, as we try, however feebly, but resolutely, to live the sanctified life, we hear... 
What the apostle says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And this, and we listen to this word, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphized by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The only other two places besides the transfiguration accounts of the word metamorphosis, change, newness where there was oldness, life where there's death, participants of the wonderful fellowship of Jesus. Beloved, let's live that way. Understanding the glory of God in Jesus through the suffering of the Son of God for your sake and my sake. Hold on to that. Pursue the praises of God in living as Christians. Walking indeed the hard way of suffering, but it's all for Jesus' sake. And for what awaits, the promise of deliverance. No suffering anymore, no sighing, no sorrow. They shall all flee away because God has given us to be his now and forever. That's what the transfiguration is all about. As the disciples prepared to say goodbye to their Savior in the excruciating agony of that terrible crucifixion, and as we now prepare to live on this week, however many days, We have to live just for God, just for Jesus. No nonsense, no amusing ourselves to death, no despair without hope. Jesus, the glorified Son, and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Are you pleased with that son? Hear him. Amen. Father, we pray, bless us. Help us to hear the son as we reflect upon what he said tonight. Lord, we pray that you would take all of our cares, all our burdens, and bear them for us. And give us to know that you're the great burden bearer. You love us. You reach out and touch us. You reach out and forgive us. You whisper in our ears, I love you. I love you still. I love you forever. We praise your name. Amen.